Hello, and welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm Lori Steele. I am Joey Boudreau. And I'm Sally Gentry. And we are so grateful that you choose to tune in to the Gifted Life. Really, thank you very much. On today's episode, the bucket list. Have you ever talked about a bucket list? Watched a movie about the bucket list? I did. There is one. You have a bucket list? Yes, I do. What's on it? (laughs) Share? Not today. (laughs) Well, there's a video going around. This one's going to inspire you, right? And it's a bucket list, and it's tied to donation, and it has been seen millions, okay, millions of times. It's something you're going to watch again and again. So we're going to talk about that, the reason behind it, and the impact it has had. Incredible. And then we're going to talk about the many facets of UNOS, the United Network for Organ Sharing. In our family support segment, we're going to talk today with Ricardo Fernandez. He's a Tulane transplant social worker. He's going to tell us about the type of support services that are offered to potential recipients on the waiting list, as well as support services after someone's received a transplant. So we look forward to talking with Ricky. Yeah, and we'll also honor a hero, all that and more here on The Gifted Life. We ask you to please share what you hear today, and we try to make it as easy as possible. Of course it is. You can easily find us on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever podcast app you may prefer. And maybe you're on social media, Donate Life Louisiana. If you're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, we're at Donate Life LA. A lot of what we talk about here, feature here, you'll see on those sites. It's pretty fun. And you can also reach us by phone, 504-648-3477. That's our hotline. We want you to call in, interact with us. What are you thinking? What do you want to know about? You can help us script our next podcast. We may even use your audio. So get involved today. Let's get going. Joining the podcast now, Mike Prescindo. He is the Director of Communications for UNOS, which stands for the United Network for Organ Sharing. And you've probably heard us talk about UNOS in our presentations or here on the podcast. They house and manage the donor registry list. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Great to be here. Hey, Mike. In previous episodes, we've talked about UNOS a little bit. And and obviously, one of your primary roles is that list, you know, managing the wait list that everyone talks about and knows about. But clearly, you guys are much more than that. Can you tell us about UNOS? I can't. And actually, even that concept of a list can even be a a bit of a misnomer because it kind of assumes that there are people in a linear order. And over time, we're going to work on helping the public understand it. It's kind of a pool. Our job is to match the organs most optimally with the, the recipient. And so the most optimal recipient might have to wait a couple of months or it might be a day because we don't really control the organs that that become available. So obviously how long somebody has been on the list is one of the variables, but there are hundreds of variables, most of them very medical and scientific. If those are all equal, then we, we talk about breaking the tie by, well, this person's been on the list longer, so they need it. Our objective is to save as many lives as possible. So someone who's on kidney dialysis that could conceivably uh, live on dialysis for many more years, obviously somebody who's predicted to maybe have 10 days left is going to get that organ first, even if the person who is healthier has been on the list longer. So it's really kind of a pool. Every time an organ becomes available anywhere in the U.S., 
we run that match, and it's a very sophisticated computer-based algorithm. We're constantly refining it based on feedback from the transplant community, the scientists, the doctors, always looking to see how we can save more lives by doing more transplants by making that system as efficient as we possibly can. So ideally, you know, you want to have the best match for that particular donor. So as he said, it's not real linear. Sometimes you'll see patients higher on the match than others. And there's so many things that go into each organ, you mentioned kidney, you know, and even with hearts and lungs, there's a lot of different comorbidities or demographic type things or simply geographical obstacles that go into the formula for the list. And myself, Mike, as the chief clinical officer, I, I deal with it more on the clinical side, but I do have a lot of dealings, a lot of workings with UNOS, especially from the policy side. So tell us a little bit about how you guys are involved from the policy standpoint. Absolutely. So Years ago, 30-some years ago, the government thought that, hey, let the, the transplant community somewhat govern itself. So they, you know, asked UNOS to stand up the, this contract and serve the system. But part of what we do is set the policies. But when I say UNOS sets the policies, it's not UNOS staff setting the policies. We have dozens and dozens of committees. Uh, some of them are organ-specific. Some of them are professional conduct. But we, So we, we look to the experts in the community. So there's always a, a donor and recipient voice at the table, but also the medical experts, the transplant professionals who may not be medical, but maybe know more about the logistics or, or the different medical dimensions. Uh, so all of these people contribute to creating these policies. We're, we also go to great lengths to be very transparent about these. So whenever a policy is up for change, it may have been through months or even years of deliberations by these committee members as they continue to refine it and in some cases do scientific modeling on these things. And ultimately, before we put it in a formal policy, it'll go out to the public for public comment. We're actually in a public comment period right now where several of those policy changes are out there on the Internet right now for the public to weigh in. Once those public comment periods are done, the, the responsible committees and our board will take into consideration that comment. Sometimes it might raise some new issues, so maybe back to the drawing board. Other times it might be a subtle refinement for what they're doing, and then it ultimately goes to the board, again, composed of members of the transplant community to vote on it and put it into place. And then once these things are implemented, it might mean that we need to rewrite code in the system in terms of how organs are allocated. It might mean we need to reconsider how the policies are monitored and even enforced. We have a member quality department that works with the different transplant hospitals and organ procurement organizations on, on their approaches to see if we can help things get better and share best practices. Uh, and occasionally there's things that aren't going according to policy, so they are also there to, to, to monitor that. And if we detect uh, an organization, depending on the, the severity of it, you know, sometimes these things are accidental, sometimes, unfortunately, maybe they're not. But it's our job to bring those to the, the organization's uh, attention. If it's something grave, we have the ability to ask them to, to stop doing transplants until we work it out. But it, usually it's a peer review process, so it goes to other professionals who, who view the incident. It's even anonymized, so they don't even know which, which hospital or organization they're evaluating. They're just looking at the facts and stuff. And uh, so that's kind of how the policy and governance function works. And we're constantly looking for 
new perspectives, new members for those board committees, and then ultimately board membership. We also have uh, regions throughout the country, so uh, several times a year we'll hold meetings in these different regions where the transplant professionals and, and uh, recipients can come together and provide feedback and, and talk about those type of things. One of the things we're currently uh, dealing with is how we might be able to bring more equity to how livers are allocated throughout right. the country, and that's been a journey that's, that's been going well, on for multiple been years a hot now, debate. we're hoping. <laughs> yeah, and from your clinical perspective, you know, welcome to hear your perspective. I, I know from a, a big picture, we're hoping to uh, go out to public comment on that with some proposed solutions this summer, gather the feedback from those, and hopefully uh, be able to, to actually have a board vote by the end of the year, probably in December, is what we're hoping for. And that's the amazing thing. You know, when we've talked about UNOS before, a lot of times we talk about it's, you know, like we said, the list, even though obviously it's not linear. But it, there's so much more that goes on, mm-hmm. and not just a list and not just policy. You know, as, as Laurie's brought to my attention, they've got campaigns on how to be a donor or, or pushing the donor registry. Yeah, at the same time that you guys were, were talking about all those policies and procedures and things, you also help to educate the public, and you're pretty good at it. Uh, you know, I'm referring to uh, this video that's going around, uh, unos.org slash bucket list. If you haven't seen it, you can also go to our uh, Facebook page, Donate Life Louisiana. It's something that we recently posted, but it's about the bucket list. And it's this video that just draws me in each and every time because it's so well done. Mike, can you tell us about, um, uh, tell us about the video and the reason behind that video? So powerful. Well, and, and it's a great story, too. Thanks for, for asking me to share it. So we, our objective was, hey, let's do a public service ad campaign. These are the kind of campaigns where TV stations and websites will air your content for free. As a not-for-profit, we don't have money to buy advertising. So we had planned on doing some things where maybe you could do some bus boards or banners in airports and things. Uh, and our objective was we wanted the public, we wanted to build trust and awareness in UNOS because we are the nation's transplant system and the hope was that the more people become aware of us and one of our mantras is you can't trust what you don't know mm-hmm. so we wanted people to become more familiar with us and and likely most people directly touched by transplantation know about us but right. there are millions of people who are potential living donors or deceased donors that uh, if they knew more about us, they might be more inclined to volunteer to be a living donor or might be more inclined to check that box at the DMV to become an organ and tissue donor. And so that was our objective is to raise that awareness and hopefully inspire people to support. So again, we, we thought, okay, let's do some print or out of home. And along the way, we were approached by a a television writer and producer, a film producer out of Australia. His wife happens to be a a doctor in the transplant field in Australia, and he knew how large this market was, and he had this neat idea to create basically a a television public service ad, a 60-second commercial, for lack of a better term. But again, these things cost hundreds of thousands, Mm. even millions of dollars to produce typically. That's not money we had. And so initially, his name's Damien Tugood. He's he's out of Australia. And and so we told him that. Great idea, Damien. We don't have the budget. (laughs) (laughs) Always the case, right? Yeah, he didn't have the budget either. Uh, So he approached some different uh, national and international ad agencies. One of them got all excited about it and said they would, and they said they wouldn't. And then another one got excited and said they would, and then they said they wouldn't. We 
did about six, nine months of, of that dance, and we finally got to the point was, darn, you know, we can't get a, a national ad agency with those kind of resources to do this for us. And Damien and I were brainstorming, like, well, I have some money set aside to do this print campaign. It's not hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, but it's money we set aside to, you know, pay for the printing of these banners that could go up in airports and shopping malls and stuff. And so we put our heads together and said, okay, um, Maybe we can pull it off that way, and in large part due to Damien Tugood's efforts of calling in some favors, and then ultimately an international ad agency called Publicis calling in some favors, we were able to get producers, writers, actors, all these folks to either donate their resources or deeply discount it. Mm. Uh, so we were actually able to pull off this phenomenal production for a fraction of the cost and with amazing results, but to the story itself, which is the really neat, engaging point, and a lot of credit to Damien for piecing it all together. There are numerous stories uh, actually around the world. Uh, the, these were inspired by stories in the U.S. where we'd heard of, and in particular Damien had heard of, uh, organ recipients uh, hearing that their deceased donor had had a bucket list. And so in honor of their donor, they were going to take that bucket list and fulfill it. And what a neat story to show how the gift of life continues. And Damien, being an advertising professional, knew that if we just hit all the sad aspects of it, people would probably tune out and turn off. And knowing that we have such short attention spans these days, he thought, okay, we've got to do something that gets people's attention, keeps them engaged for 30 or 60 seconds that we have it there, and really touches their heart and very authentically. Everything we do is authentic. We're not making any of this stuff up. Obviously, we got actors involved to play the people, and it's inspired by real stories. We didn't try to depict a, a real uh, bucket list story verbatim, but I, I do have a, a neat clincher story in the end that we actually art imitated life even more than we knew. I'll get to that toward the end, but uh, it's neat as the production came together. One of the gentlemen on camera in the spot turns out he was just an extra, but he had, he had a double lug transfer plant recipient oh, wow. there on set. He was one of the actors in the, the scene where it looks like they're at a, uh, a youth hostel and they're playing basketball and stuff, and he's kind of mm -hmm. facing the camera with like strawberry blonde hair. So he was there, uh, and the actual gentleman who plays the lead male in the role, the guy who's fulfilling the bucket list, mm -hmm. he used to be a television reporter and told us a story about a young lady who was being denied uh, transplant services by her insurance company. He got involved as a reporter, got the insurance company to pay for it. She got her transplant, but that one didn't take. By then, he'd fallen in love with her, helped her oh, and her family wow. raise the funds and awareness, got her another one. You know, so there's all these little connections that just, uh, you know, frankly, I think it was divine intervention. That's meant fact to be. That all this stuff yes. came together uh, in so many different neat ways. But back to the bucket list story, the bucket list that is semi-fictionalized, again, based on real things. If you look at that, the, the website that you mentioned at the beginning, you'll see video clips and links to the actual news stories. And one of them, the news folks, I think, covered the, the fact that this young man, one of his bucket list items was to be a race car driver, and that's, that's in one of the news clips there. But the news station put up his real bucket list, the mm -hmm. one he had written in his own hand, and I zoomed in on it. And it, it was something to the effect of do more for mom or be a better son for mom. Um, Unbeknownst okay. to us, that was the final bucket list thing that we had actually put in this mm -hmm. PSA, not That's knowing great. that connection. Mm. For those folks listening who haven't seen it, I almost don't want to ruin it for them. Cause it's so <laughs> it is but, good. Uh, like you need to take uh, so I'll, I'll leave seconds. it at that. But 
watch it, you you can't help but be moved. And the, the comments on, on Facebook have been just unbelievable. We've had over 20 million people ah, do this thing a, already. Um, and, you know, it's easy to push a button saying you like something. You know, right. we all do it on Facebook and such. But we had nearly a quarter million people actually share it. So yeah, that told us not great. only did they like it enough, they said, this is really cool and you got to watch it. So it, it just, again, the metrics have been outstanding. We brought hundreds of thousands of people to our landing page so they could learn more about transplantation. I think we doubled the people who are following us on Facebook, and that's where we're always putting out up-to-date content. Sometimes it's Juno's content. Sometimes it's content from organizations like yours or other news organizations, but that's really oriented toward the, the general public as opposed to maybe our LinkedIn or some of our communications channels that are oriented for the professionals in transplantation. Uh, you know, what I measure by is uh, folks who are in my life who don't cross donation with me, but then they send me a video like that, like, you have to see this. That's going to inspire you. And that's when I know, man, we got you. We reached yeah. you, right? And so mm-hmm. I saw that video a couple of times because it was sent to me by folks that I hadn't talked to about donations. So, man, that was a really great campaign that's continuing to work. If you want to see it, unos.org slash bucket list. Or if you're a fan of Donate Life Louisiana, it's on that Facebook page, too. Well, we have a huge thank you to organizations like yours, too, because we could have just put this on our Facebook page, but we reached out to organizations like yours and others around the country and said, hey, we've got this. We're coming out with it. Feel free to share it if you like. We're not, you know, we don't require anything. We're just, it was, it was good stuff. And, yeah. and we think a huge part of its viral success were transplant hospitals, organ procurement organizations, donate life organizations throughout the country who really got behind it and shared it with, with your communities and your followers. And, and understanding that you even have some folks that follow this internationally, we could see it was getting picked up in Europe and South America and Asia, <laughs> Australia, nice. Canada. It, was, I mean, it really, truly lit up around the world. Well, and another way, Mike, that Eunice has raised awareness is also honoring organ and tissue donors through your National Donor Memorial Wall, and you said recently the fallen soldiers have been recognized. Yeah, so it's in honor of all of those folks that made that last generous gift of organ donation. Years ago, I think 10 years or more ago, we established the National Donor Memorial, which is a beautiful park and memorial here at the UNOS headquarters in Richmond, Virginia, but it's open to the public. Uh, we welcome everybody to come there. There's a, a beautiful, it, it takes you through a journey of transplantation, uh, literally beginning with a drop of water and the ripple effect and how that affects so many people. And, and one of the real moving things is there's a wall, a donor wall with, with many names of donors. You know, there's been hundreds of thousands of donors, so we don't have everybody verbatim, but we actually put a lot of, of effort into identifying names from our databases that represent donors, just first names, but it's it's likely that uh, most people that come here in honor of their loved one will probably find the corresponding name or variation of, of that name on our wall. And then every now and then we're adding more. And then most recently, uh, to coincide with uh, Veterans Day, an effort that began a number of years ago uh, by an organ recipient who received an organ from a deceased soldier really wanted to say thanks. And he worked diligently to to raise the funds and uh, worked with an artist to develop a really neat sculpture uh, that's a bigger-than-life soldier who's kneeling with his hands forward as if he's offering that gift of life and recognizing that we've had so many soldiers that have been 
that generous both in uh, in our uh, military hospitals in Europe and the U.S. Actually, a delegation from Langstel uh, Hospital in Germany came to the dedication. We had a number of family representatives from donors, but then we also had recipients. There was a, a Navy SEAL here who uh, had lung damage based on combat and received a set of lungs. He was here to say thank you. Uh, and hearing the stories both from the donor families and the recipients was, was so touching, and it's just such a fitting home for us. Uh, and there's pictures and videos and news stories and stuff on our, our UNOS.org website where you can find the information on the donor memorial and those associated things as well. So we encourage folks. We also, whenever we do these things, we try to live stream them on Facebook as well. That's great. So we had thousands of people around the world following us live and then the video is still there for anybody that wants to go back and watch it as well oh, what a great partner i'm going to go back and watch that video again mike because it was that good <laughs> you guys are, are great partners for us and we appreciate all that you do and thanks for taking the time today thank you all right mike with Unos joining us here on the gifted life so excited. We have an in-studio guest today from Tulane Medical Center. Welcome, Ricky Fernandez. Hey, Ricky. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Yeah, he's a clinical social worker, been doing it for a while, sort of veteran in his ranks, and he's going to help us learn today, Sal. Yes, indeed. So, Ricky, you know, we had talked a little bit earlier about what type of support services are offered. Would you mind expanding on that a little bit and sharing that information? Sure. There are support services offered for both pre- and post-transplant recipients. One of them is, of course, the availability of patients and families to fundraise. And there are agencies that assist them with the process where they will guide them, give them ideas, give them the tools needed to go back into the communities and plan festivities or recreational activities that could help benefit and raise money for both pre- and post-transplant expenses. I never really even thought about that as an aspect hate to sound so naive, but I see fundraiser efforts. I see it throughout the community. And of course, being in the industry, you know, I always think, oh, great, you know, but it never really dawned on me that that would be one of the aspects of you guys' job in helping, you know, facilitate those events. Transplant social workers and financial counselors work steadily with three agencies that assist families with the fundraising process. One is strictly designed to help pediatric families and their children is called the Children's Organ Transplant Association, or CODA. Another that works with adults is called Help Hope Live. And yet another one for adults is called the National Foundation for Transplants. These are professionals that will guide loved ones or other caregivers within the family to focus on these efforts in the communities and with church groups, things like that. So along with that, then when somebody does get listed and they're there in the hospital waiting for that organ, do you go in then and speak with the families or is there a psychological that's done first? The process is uh, social workers do see every patient and family that comes into the hospital. They also see them through our patient clinics and conduct what's called a psychosocial evaluation. Uh-huh. Psychological or even psychiatric follow-up is done on a referral basis. They're either referred or recommended by the transplant social workers, the RN transplant coordinators, or the physicians. And 
a full psychosocial is completed where we look at things like appropriate caregiving, appropriate uh, mode of transportation, being mm-hmm. not just Medicaid or public transit, but having some access to private transportation in the event that a person is called with an organ offer mm-hmm. in the middle of the night or a holiday or a weekend, or if they're called in with a critical lab value that requires immediate attention. We also look at substance abuse or mental health concerns, uh-huh. which could all be barriers to meeting the post-care demands right. of taking care of the new organ. Uh-huh. And this goes for both liver, pancreas, and kidneys, which is what we do at Tulane. Uh-huh. There are other centers that will also do hearts and lungs I see. and small intestines, small bowels. So do you then do like one-on-one counseling with the recipient and their families, or is it more of a group setting that people can share what's worked for them or what's not worked for them? Some transplant centers do offer support groups for people who have similar issues or interests or could be to bring in community speakers uh, from the outside who may be an expert in their area. Uh For the most part, most transplant centers do focus on individual patient and the family concerns. The social worker would again assess what those barriers may be, and then we will refer out to either a psychologist or psychiatry if needed. I see. If more of a medication evaluation is needed. The importance of them maintaining the medical regimen is life or death. Like like some people that that have high blood pressure medicine, you know, they may skip a month and, you know, or skip from here and there if they can't make ends meet in other uh, areas. But with transplant, it is so important that they can't skip one single dose. Yes. So you guys' job in, in that is so vital in keeping them healthy, you know, and, and, and being able to take care of themselves. One of the things we do was called a telephone prescreen. And my colleague and I will assess all patients to see if they're if they're on dialysis, if they're not on dialysis, we check for height and weight to make sure they may meet BMI criteria mm-hmm. for listing. We check to see if they have a caregiver, access to transportation. We're kind of looking for red flags before the entire process begins to know what to look for and address once they come to clinic and get a more formal assessment when they come through the education class, which all patients and caregivers are required to attend. Yeah. So what don't you do? You do a lot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I deal with the volunteers, too. You talked about helping with those fundraiser efforts, getting them out in the community, giving them the information that they need. So kind of what's the success rate or what do you base on that? How is that going when it comes to doing that in our community? When I get the feedback is uh, nationwide because I'm on a mailing list with CODA because I do pediatric transplant as well. The parents are just so grateful. And many are saying that if it weren't for CODA, that they don't know if they would have made it. Because many times one of the parents may have to step away from their job, either on short-term disability or resign altogether Mm -hmm. to meet the needs of their now, I wouldn't say critically ill, but chronically ill child. Mm -hmm. That demand alone takes away from being able to meet their employment and career demands. Mm -hmm. So CODA, even though all these fundraising efforts are not geared to take the place of the income, but it, it releases the stressors of the added hardship. Yeah. That comes with... Uh, the expenses of transplant. And I guess you, you kind of introduced them, too, to the transplant world, what's out there, links, resources, partners, which is what we try to do on this podcast as well. That's kind of mm-hmm. what you feel? Yes, absolutely. And also to make them feel that first call will decrease so much anxiety and anguish mm-hmm. for the family mm-hmm. that it is it's almost like that volunteer or person on the other line becomes like a family member. 
wow. to guide them through the entire process. So if somebody out there uh, is listening and they want more information, kind of where do you send them? Or is there a site or is there a phone number if they wanted to reach out and maybe get more information, learn more about what you talked about? There's so many resources out there, like for people like who want to return to work, there's Ticket to Work, there's Louisiana Rehab Services. So I try to assess what the exact needs are mm-hmm. and what are their long-term goals because basically they have a new outcome in life where mm-hmm. they, they're still coming to the doctor regularly and having labs completed, but hopefully they're off of dialysis. Mm-hmm. Their, their quality of life has just improved so much. And for liver transplant, just having a, a replacement liver, they're no longer always feeling sick, feeling uh, like they have altered mental status. All that is corrected in time. Man, you provide a lot of comfort, right. sounds like. Yes. Yeah, good job. We try to. <laughs> yeah. Good. This information will be available on our website at lopa.org. Uh, go to the Family Services tab, and then you'll see Support Resources. Well, go. We appreciate you coming in, joining us in the podcast studio, the podcast world. Ricky Fernandez with Tulane Medical Center, clinical social worker, helping us learn here on The Gifted Life. At this point in the podcast, we do want to honor a hero. And the story today is about one of those heroes who inspired UNOS's bucket list video. That hero is Christina Chesterman. A family found a life-changing list shortly after their 21-year-old daughter was tragically killed. Christina Chesterman was riding her bicycle when she was struck by a drunk driver. She died as a result of the accident. Christina's parents were cleaning out her apartment when they opened her makeup bag and found the bucket list. Some of the things in the bucket list were be in four places at once, Mm -hmm. go to Venice, learn to play chess, beat someone at chess, save someone's life. That fifth one, saving someone's life, is pretty powerful. Christina was pursuing her childhood dream of becoming a nurse. She wasn't able to fulfill that dream but through her death, she was able to save five lives. Christina was an organ donor, and her heart, liver, kidneys, and pancreas went to the people who needed them and kept them alive. Susan Vieira saw Christina's story on Facebook and was putting the pieces together. She was the person saved by Christina's heart. After connecting with Christina's mother on Facebook, Susan promised to help the family the items off of the bucket list. As people found out about Christina and Susan's amazing story, hundreds of strangers offered to help cross off things on Christina's bucket list. Strangers have visited places Christina would have wanted to visit. Just like Susan, two other families that were saved by Christina's organs contacted the family after reading their story. Many others have said Christina's amazing story has inspired them to become organ donors. And you can see more about this story. You can see Christina's picture. You can see her bucket list. We'll put a link at lopa.org slash podcast. And now we pause to say thank you to Christina for the gift of life. In our question and answer segment today, we received this email at info at lopa.org. I was just diagnosed with an inflammatory disease and wonder 
if I need to remove myself from the donor registry. I don't want to pass this ailment on to anyone else. Joe? No, please don't remove yourself from the registry. As I've said before, not only with inflammatory diseases like such as sarcoidosis or rheumatoid arthritis or just plain old arthritis, it's very similar to other disease processes that, yes, it may rule out one organ. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you've got diabetes, it may rule out the pancreas, yes. But there are still many other lives that can be saved through organ tissue and eye donation. So we'll evaluate when that time should come. Most of the time, uh, you will still be able to save many lives and enhance the lives of many others. All right, there you have it. You want more or you want us to answer a specific question? Info at lopa.org. Or you can give us a call at 504-648-3477. Always would love to hear from you. Guys, we have wrapped up yet another episode of The Gifted Life. Episode 51 in the books. <laughs> there you go. I know somebody was going to have to say it. It's like just rolls off the tongue, guys. We had some pretty special guests in today. We did. We did. We want to first thank Mike Presendo for not only explaining the many layers of UNOS, but also for their continued community outreach efforts that have clearly reached so many people. And we thank Ricky Fernandez for sharing his perspective from the Transplant Center side on what it means for transplant recipients. We just love our partners. We learn every podcast and we hope you take what you learn and you spread it in your community. That's how it works. Thanks everyone for listening. We want to remind you that you can register as an organ, eye, and tissue donor anytime at registerme.org. Now, Go out and do something you don't normally do to help us make life happen. This is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreau, and Sally Gentry. Our producers are Kirsten Hines and Shalon Caraway. We are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Metairie, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. 